It's been quite a wild few weeks in Washington, and news broke Tuesday that the House Judiciary Committee scheduled its first impeachment hearing for next week, on December 4th. But for now, public impeachment inquiry hearings in front of the House Intelligence Committee are over, which gives us a chance to take a look at some other impeachment inquiry news that's emerged over the past few days. Specifically, a story The Washington Post reported Sunday. Since the impeachment inquiry launched in Congress, the White House Counsel's Office conducted its own review of President Trump's decision this summer to place Ukraine military aid on hold. That White House review found hundreds of documents showing an extensive effort to justify the decision to hold up the money. The documents also show a debate between Trump's acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and other government departments over whether delaying the military aid was even legal. Now, the White House Counsel's Office conducted this review, and The Washington Post managed to report out some of its contents. But will all of the uncovered information ever leave the walls of the White House? What specifics do we know about the review's findings, and how does it affect the case for impeachment? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. Before the end of this episode and before you head off to celebrate Thanksgiving, we'll touch on some subpoena news out of the courts and what happens when the inquiry moves to the House Judiciary Committee next week. But first, I talked to national investigative reporter Carol Lennig, who reported on the White House Counsel investigation Sunday, along with our colleagues Josh Dossie and Tom Hamburger. I started by asking Carol if it was unusual for the White House Counsel's Office to pursue an internal investigation into the Ukraine aid decision to begin with. In a way, a White House counsel launching into uh, in-depth research about their own internal records is job number one of a good lawyer. Your client is the White House. Your client is also a little bit the president of the United States. And what you're trying to do is get your hands around the facts. What has happened? What do the records show? What's the timeline? Are there bad things we're going to learn in these records? Are there good things that we're going to learn that are exculpatory and provide the White House with a good defense for why the aid was blocked and why the president pushed the president of Ukraine to investigate a Democratic rival? So it's job one when you're the lawyer. So it's not like the White House counsel was compelled to conduct its own investigation by any outside body. They were doing it for their own research purposes. Absolutely. Also doing it in a protective crouch, Allison. You know, one of, oh my gosh, there's a House impeachment inquiry. Let's get to the bottom of this now. And apparently what they found was not all sunshine and roses. I want to talk about the details of that. But first, what kind of documents was the White House counsel looking into? Largely emails or were there other materials as well? So, of course, emails are going to be the easiest thing for the White House to dig into and to research. The White House Counsel's Office has immediate access to all of those. And that correspondence provides, you know, the outsider with what was going on in real time. People communicate, what was the reason we're holding this aid? Who is asking for us to hold this? What are we doing and why? And those are important facts. But the other records are going to be memorandums to file, right? Or a, a submission about the military aid or letters, you know, that Congress sent to the White House and White and the White House responded to Congress. Remember, there were lawmakers asking, what's up with this aid? Why are we not providing it to Ukraine as we authorized in February? As well, this review has included 
interviews with White House staff that are key fact witnesses that made decisions in the wake of the July 25th call and before it having to do with the hold on the aid. So documents, emails, interviews, what did the White House Counsel's Office find? What are the basics of what we know at this point? I wish we knew everything that they found, but what we do know so far is that they uncovered potentially politically damaging correspondence between the chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and the office of the White House Budget Office, what's called the Office of Management and Budget. These two entities were discussing after the president's decision to block the aid and his orders, they were discussing what's the rationale? What is the answer we're going to give the public about why this hold has happened? And there were disputes back and forth about whether or not it complied with the law to hold this aid. When the president or anybody in the White House blocks aid that's congressionally authorized, there has to be a review, a policy review, to determine if there's some reason to hold it back. And here we're seeing that after the fact, they're trying to come up with the answers to those key questions. So you say potentially politically damning. Are you suggesting that what was found by the White House is not necessarily legally damning for the president? Correct. I don't know enough, and my great colleagues at The Post, Josh Dossie and Tom Hamburger, we do not know enough about what those records explicitly state to say that it is legally a problem. We know that the White House Lawyer's Office, the White House Counsel, that we know from our sources that there's been some consternation in that office about how this looks to be coming up with a story after the fact about the rationale and to see all the disputes about the law. As far as those disputes about the law, people at the Office of Management and Budget were saying that it was legal to withhold the aid, but then others at the National Security Council and the State Department were suggesting that perhaps it wasn't and it was problematic. But ultimately, OMB lawyers were able to defend the hold on the grounds that it was temporary. Am mm-hmm. I understanding that correctly? You are, absolutely. And in fact, there is testimony that helps buttress our understanding of what's happened. Mark Sandy, a career OMB staffer in the budget office, he testified behind closed doors so far, that he asked the lawyers at the OMB shop, is this okay for us to do this, to withhold this aid? And he was told, as long as it's temporary, it's okay. Now, there are people that dispute that, experts and people who've used to work in that budget office who have opined that that's not cool, that's not copacetic. But we need to see more of the details of that and and the records themselves to make a good assessment. So the search for a legal defense to withhold aid may be an unusual move by OMB. Yes, it may be. I would say that one of the most unusual elements of this Mark Sandy brought to fore, which was that very, very senior political people in OMB were coming down into his shop wanting to understand this aid package. And he said he'd never seen anything like that. Senior politicals putting their fingers in the muck, so to speak, you know, but only about this Ukraine aid, not about other things. And that was surprising to him. So do these emails reflect a tension then between some of these groups, like the White House Counsel's Office and Mulvaney, for example? The tension between the White House Counsel's Office and Mick Mulvaney and his office predates this review. However, the tension, as described to me by various sources, is twofold. One, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, is very uncomfortable with some of the decisions that Mick Mulvaney has made in the course of this 
saga involving Ukraine. I'm told that the White House Counsel's Office was apoplectic after Mick Mulvaney went to the White House briefing room lectern and started to explain that there had been indeed a quid pro quo after the president, his lawyers, and everyone else said there was no such thing. Mulvaney later said his televised comments were misinterpreted, but they're there on television for people to see. Now with these emails, what we are hearing from our sources is that the White House Counsel's Office is learning about something that looks a little shady, at least to the naked eye, and has some concern about the records that they are pulling in their review. To be clear, we don't know whether or not the White House Counsel's concern is about other records. There may be other Mulvaney-related records that worry them, but these are among the ones we've learned the most about. So among the things you do know about, how does the new information about Mulvaney's emails with the budget office line up with the timeline that we already knew about when the aid was withheld? Oh, so fascinating. I'm glad you asked that question. So there are many moments in which the emails link up with key events in this timeline. First, we know that in mid-July, the president orders the block on the aid. We know that on July 25th, the president has his famous phone call with Volodymyr Zelensky, the newly elected president. And in that call, he's saying, you know, we've been very good to you. We've really protected you guys. And by the way, I have a favor I need to ask of you. The emails are in early August. In them, Mulvaney and budget director Russ Vogt are talking about what's our rationale, what's the legal reasoning. So they're having this sort of stressful conversation after the fact. And what's interesting is that it is just after the White House counsel's office and the White House generally have been put on notice about something important. And the thing they've been put on notice about is that the CIA has contacted the White House to say, we have an anonymous employee at the CIA who's lodged a complaint about the July 25th call. And I just want to let you know about that. This anonymous complaint eventually grows and blossoms and becomes the whistleblower complaint that goes to Congress. But at least in this time frame, when Mulvaney and Vote are discussing what's our reasoning, It's very soon after the White House is first put on alert that other people have concerns about the president's interactions with Ukraine. Then what has OMB said about how how to explain these emails or what's their response to this? The OMB says these are entirely appropriate bureaucratic exchanges trying to dot their I's, cross their T's, and make a record of how they made their decision. What's the law? What's our policy review? Let's all make sure that we've done the the proper due diligence to confirm we did this properly. That's it. Is the White House required to turn its findings of its internal review over to the public in any way? Absolutely not. They have no duty to. And based on what we've seen from the White House counsel's shop, I would bet everything, my house, that they're not going to turn this over. I did think it was interesting that we learned from sources and reported in this story that the White House Counsel's Shop has been especially focused in their review on documents that sort of cross the transom. And those are ones in which the White House officials are talking to people outside the White House in other federal agencies, the State Department, the Defense Department, 
arguably, you could say the budget office is actually a separate agency from the executive office of the president. So those emails are subject to public records law. Mm -hmm. And that means that at some point, they could become public both by subpoena from the House or a federal lawsuit over public records. There are already dozens of federal records requests for some of these precise email exchanges. So the internal deliberations that don't sort of go into these other agencies would be something that might be protected by executive privilege, and therefore they wouldn't have to turn it over to Congress. Yes. I mean, that'll be fought over till the cows come home about whether the White House has to turn any of this over. I would just remind for historical perspective that in the impeachment inquiry of President Nixon, for a long time, the argument was made that the tape recording devices inside the White House were obviously executive privilege, according to the White House. But the Supreme Court ruled that they had to turn them over. And Richard Nixon resigned days after that Supreme Court decision. Throughout this impeachment process, we've seen uh, a general reluctance from the White House to comply with Congress. Is this another example of that? Yes and no. Let me give them the benefit of the doubt because every good lawyer is going to try to get to the bottom of the facts, search the records, interview the witnesses, find out what's going on, both to protect their client, but also to really find out the truth. And very similar thing happened in the Mueller investigation when Congress was also at the same time investigating Russian interference and possible collusion with the Trump campaign. During that time, all those lawyers were gathering, looking through the records, lawyers for the president, lawyers for the president's campaign, lawyers for the president's family, and they were trying to get to the bottom of what happened. When they looked at those records, what did they find? A Trump Tower meeting with Don Trump Jr., email exchanges between a business ally of the president and a Russian representative of the Kremlin. So you want to know the facts. And it's clear on the record that the White House counsel has said, we're not cooperating with this probe, but at least they want to figure out what happened. So that clarity around not wanting to cooperate with this probe has culminated, at least this week, in a relevant piece of news from the past few days about whether or not ex-White House counsel Don McGahn would have to testify in front of Congress. So on Monday, a federal judge ruled that McGahn does, in fact, have to comply with the House subpoena. What implications does that court decision have for the rest of the impeachment inquiry? It depends, but it portends bad things for the White House because what Judge Brown said in her decision was essentially that there's already been Supreme Court holdings that a senior advisor to the president has a duty to comply with a congressional subpoena when they have information that they view is protected by executive privilege, they can cite that. They can refuse to answer a question on advice of counsel, but they have to go to the interview. You know, they have to comply with the subpoena. And it doesn't mean that all of these people are going to start flocking into the impeachment hearings and start testifying. That's like sort of a dream of Democrats, I suppose. This will be fought all the way to the Supreme Court. But it's just the beginning of telling you, look, this is what the law is. This is what good judges and good lawyers think. And I would guess that other judges will find the same. So this doesn't mean we're going to hear from Don McGahn in Congress imminently. That's absolutely right, Allison. Don McGahn isn't going to show up in any hearing anytime soon. He's already filed his motion to appeal this decision. This is going to go to the Supremes. A few last pieces of news I want to touch on as we head into the break is is about what to expect next week. So Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff said on Monday that House investigators plan to send a report to the Judiciary Committee early next week, right after this Thanksgiving break. 
And then on Tuesday, the House Judiciary Committee scheduled its first impeachment hearing officially for December 4th. What does all of this mean for the next steps here? If you think about this just like a a federal court case, I covered federal courts for a long time, and that's sort of the analogy that I apply to this. All of the evidence that this grand jury, the House Intelligence Committee, has gathered is now going to be formed into articles of impeachment, charges, if you will, accusations of a crime. And the House Judiciary will now make some decisions. Is there enough evidence to bring those charges? Essentially, the U.S. attorney in this case. And then the next step will be the Senate. The Senate, the saucer that cools the cup in historical terms, will be the body that handles the trial. It will sort through whether or not the evidence is strong enough to actually convict. All right. So before we get to that report, we have Thanksgiving break ahead of us. If people want to completely tune out from the news of impeachment or politics, what is a good book or movie or TV recommendation that you would throw their way? So I feel really badly about this because I have this book club. It's run by Elizabeth Shreve, and she's amazing. She does book publicity in D.C., and she and the group make such amazing choices. And literally every single time we meet for book club, I have to bag out and say and admit that I have only read (laughs) one-third to one-tenth of the book. You are all of us. (laughs) Exactly. But the one that's on my bedstand right now from the group that I want to finish because I started it and it's fantastic is called Normal People. So that's my toss to everybody. It's a... Sally Rooney? Yes. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Carol, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? We'll be back after Thanksgiving break. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the vibrant Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.